Please remain standing and turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Now let's turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. 
so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'd like you to imagine for a minute uh, that you've been summoned for jury duty. And you go to downtown Belfont, you're at the county courthouse down there, and you, and you walk inside, um, and you're sitting in that great big chamber with the pews. It's almost like a, it's almost like a church setup. Um, in front of you, there's the bar, kind of like this communion rail, which is not actually typical for uh, Presbyterian churches. It's, that's another topic for another day. But it's a good illustration for what that courtroom's like, where you have the bar, and then on the other side of the bar, you have the tables for the... Uh, prosecution and the defense, right? And then you have the, the well, and you have the, the big seat where the judge sits, and you have the nice cushy chairs for the jury over on the one side. I don't know if you've ever actually gotten to go and sit in it, but they're more comfortable up there um, than the, the pews in the back. Well, now that you've hopefully got that, at least in your mind's eye a little bit, you can imagine that room expanding at a rapid pace. The roof comes off, sky opens up above, and the whole thing is expanding to a grand scale to cover all of State College. And the jury box becomes so big that Mount Nittany can fit inside it. Mount Nittany is sitting in the jury box. Bizarre image, right? But it's important because this is the imagery uh, similar. It's related, at least it's a good illustration for the imagery that Micah is using here in chapter 6. And you can imagine even further that behind the table for the prosecution sits the prophet Micah. Behind the table for the defense sits the entire nation of Israel. And on the bench, of course, sits the Lord, the righteous judge. Micah 6 is structured as what Old Testament scholars like to call a covenant lawsuit. That's the kind of term biblical scholars like to use for it. The point is that the Lord is confronting his people here uh, in a sort of legal way on the terms of the covenant that he established with them long ago. And he's calling them to account to the terms of that covenant relationship. So we want to look at this chapter, this covenant lawsuit. In three parts this morning, we're going to start with that covenant courtroom that I've just described, verses 1 to 5. Then we're going to talk about a covenant calling, verses 6 to 8. And then finally, a covenant conviction in verses 9 to 16. So a covenant courtroom, a covenant calling, and a covenant conviction. So first, a little bit more about the uh, covenant courtroom. Um, Notice the way that God is calling the mountains here to hear this case against his people. Now, usually, um, the witnesses and the jury in a trial are, are people, right? <laughs> Obviously, kind of goes without saying. But here, you see, the Lord is kind of personifying these mountains. He's treating the mountains as though they can see and as though they can bear witness. They can hear the argument that's and, and, and uh, kind of weigh the argument that's being brought against the Israelites. Kind of like a kind of something in between a jury and, and witness that he's calling them to be here. 
Why is that? Well, to understand why this imagery is being used, we have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, when God initially made his covenant with Israel, he was not, of course, making that covenant just with that one generation, the one generation that was about to enter the promised land. God was establishing a relationship that he intended to last forever, for it to be perpetual and to last for generation after generation down through history. And so... God is going to call to witness that covenant, not merely individuals alive at that time who would die and then the witness would be gone. He, what he does is he frequently calls upon the very heavens and earth to bear witness to the promises that he's making and the obligations that he's placing on his people. Thanks to commentator Bruce Waltke for some cross-references here. One of the important ones is Deuteronomy 4.26. Uh, Moses is saying that if later generations of the people of of God start uh, worshiping idols instead of the Lord, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon perish from the land that you were going over the Jordan to possess. He's calling heaven and earth to witness. He does this in other places as well. Now, don't forget also that at the end of Deuteronomy, there's that great covenant ceremony where God uh, divides people in two. He has half of them sit, stand on one mountain, Mount Gerizim, and one half of the people stand on the other mountain across from it, Mount Ebal. And those two mountains come to represent these two paths that Israel might take. One is the path of covenant blessing, and the other is the path of covenant curse. God was very starkly, very physically displaying for Israel this binary choice between following God and rejecting God. And as long as those mountains stood, and they were going to be there for a long time, they were going to be a lasting reminder for Israel of that history, of that covenant. Mountains don't just up and disappear. They don't come and go like so many other things in life do. They are are symbolic of durability. They're they're, They're things that were here long before we got here, and they're going to be there long after we are gone. That's why God is able to appeal then to those mountains and to say, hear the indictment of the Lord, because they were there when he made the covenant in the first place. Uh, they, they heard it kind of symbolically, and now, now they can um, symbolically hold Israel accountable to the terms of that covenant. Now, before God presents his case against Israel, notice what he does. He invites them to present their case against him. Do you have anything to complain against me about? That's the question. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Reminds me of the farewell speeches of Samuel and then after, uh, sorry, of Joshua and then after him, Samuel, uh, where they basically say at the end of their um, leadership position in Israel, if, if I've wronged any of you, if I've abused my power in some way, please come to me and tell everybody now, tell everybody now, publicly in front of everyone, and, of course, the point is I haven't. Of course, there's nothing for you to bring, to bring into the light because I have led you, they're saying, with integrity. I've led you with selflessness. And the point here is the same. God hasn't wearied Israel. It's like we read earlier from 1 John chapter 5. His commandments are not burdensome. In fact, Jesus, you think of how he says really the opposite. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you might think, well, that's, that's Jesus, though. That's true under the new covenant. That's true under the gospel. 
But of course, this is under the old covenant, right? It's the law where everything was much heavier, more burdensome for God's people. And there's a sense where that's, uh, where that's true, a sense. Uh, this, uh, there's a sense in which before Christ came, the emphasis in the history of God's relationship with his people, the emphasis was often on the condemning power of the law. The condemning power of the law when God's people don't keep it. There's that tone um, that can be darker sometimes under the old covenant. But the point is here that the law itself, the commandments of God themselves, were never burdensome even then. They were not burdensome even then. Deuteronomy 32 describes um, God's law as your very life. And you think about Psalm 119 and all the ways that it celebrates how wonderful and life-giving God's law is. Or Psalm uh, 19, now it says God's law revives the soul, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it's sweeter than honey. In keeping it, there is great reward. God's law is a good thing, not a bad thing. Got to remember that. There's an interesting um, word play when you move from verse 3 to verse 4. Um, you can't see it in English as clearly, but one of the commentators, Walt, he again actually helped me see this in the Hebrew. Um, the word that is translated, how have I wearied you at the end of verse 3, in Hebrew sounds very, very, very similar. It's super close to the word in at the beginning of verse 4, I brought you up. Of course, those meanings don't sound the same, wearying and bringing you up, but they sound similar in Hebrew. So what's the point here? God is using this um, kind of rhetorical device to, it's as though he sings the way Walkie puts it, Israel, I have not overburdened you. I've actually done the opposite. I have unburdened you. So far from piling on you a slavery that's hard for you to bear up under, what did I do? I actually did the opposite. I released you from slavery. I gave you your freedom by leading you out of Egypt. Now, this whole section is very important because it establishes yet again that the whole covenant relationship between God and Israel is on the basis not of what Israel has done for God to earn a relationship with him. The whole relationship is based on what God has done for Israel. That's the point of these following verses 4 and 5. Okay. He focuses here on two main historical events. One is the Exodus, God delivering them from Egypt. And the other is near the end of the wilderness wanderings, God delivering them from the people of Moab right before they enter the promised land. And in both cases, it's not there what Israel did for God that makes the difference, but what God did for Israel. That's what makes those such great and memorable parts of their history. This is, by the way, very much like the pattern um, already established when God gave the law in the first place at Mount Sinai. When he gives the Ten Commandments, how do they begin? You think, well, it starts with the first commandment, right? Uh, no other gods before. No, that's not how the Ten Commandments begin. The Ten Commandments begin with a statement of history. What has God just done for Israel? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that is why Israel is supposed to keep these Ten Commandments. It's because of what God has already done. And he did it first, not because they obeyed the Ten Commandments, but because they were helpless in slavery. They could not survive. They could not be freed without God's gracious intervention and intervene. He did. He delivered them from slavery. And now he's calling them. He's calling them. Now, because I've done all of this for you, now 
look at this wonderful law I'm giving you. You can live by these commands out of gratitude uh, for that um, grace and that deliverance. I want you to live by these commandments, not so that I will love you, but because I love you and because you love me. That's why you keep the Ten Commandments. Well, we come next to verse 6 then. And verse 6 begins to illustrate what it's like for God's people to turn that whole approach to the covenant, to the law, completely on its head. To turn it upside down and think of it in a way completely contrary to the heart of that covenant relationship. Um, Imagine if you invited somebody over to your house for dinner and you had a nice meal together. And at the end of it, um, they said, well, uh, whenever you're ready, you can go and bring me the check. <laughs> and, and you're, well, what are you, what? And, and they said, well, you know, you bring me the check. How much do I owe you? That would be a pretty awkward moment, right? They're around your family dinner table. If you were at a restaurant, that would be normal, right? There's a time and a place for um, asking for the bill. Um, but when you're a guest at somebody's house, that makes no sense. It's not just rude and awkward. It would communicate something. It would communicate that this moment of hospitality and fellowship is actually not that. It's just a transaction. It's just a transaction. And there's something like that going on in um, this line of rhetorical questions in verses 6 and 7, picturing here the way that Israel uh, might be inclined to respond to this covenant lawsuit. Okay, Lord, so you let us out of Egypt. You got us past the Moabites. Okay, well, then, God, what do we owe you then? Uh, go and bring us the check. Right. With what shall I come before the Lord? Bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, maybe? Calves a year old, thousands of rams? Um, or I know, maybe I should do like the Canaanites do with their gods, and I should bring something really sacrificial, something really costly, but my firstborn child. Maybe God will accept that uh, and be satisfied as, as a return for what he's done for us. Maybe, maybe if I give him that, maybe God will just call it even and leave us alone. Of course, Israel and Micah's day were not the first ones to make this kind of mistake. Um, think about King Saul when he kept back <clears throat> some of the spoil of the battle that God had told him to completely destroy. And he did it, he said, well, so that we could offer sacrifices to God. We're being you know, so generous. We're being so religious. We're being so holy, very holy sounding. But um, Samuel is not impressed. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams, the prophet tells him. Uh, Saul's successor, King David, much better king than Saul, but he um, had to be brought face to face with the same reality when he sinned so deeply, when he's confessing that sin in Psalm 51. And David realizes what Saul did not. He says, Lord, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David says, what are the sacrifices of God? The sacrifices of God, he says, are a broken spirit. 
a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What's going to bring reconciliation between David and the Lord and between Israel and the Lord is not going to be some outward ritual, religious ritual to go through, but a change inwardly in their relationship with God. It's not that there was no place for sacrifices in Israel. Yes, they were a a part of God's law. There was a time and a place and a reason for those sacrifices. But these people are missing the point even of the sacrificial system. The sacrifices were never there to be some sort of quid pro quo. Well, God did this for us, so I guess we'd better pay for it now. Or maybe if we pay ahead now with these sacrifices, then God will help us in the future. No, that's the way the Canaanites treated sacrifices to their gods. It's not how Israel was supposed to treat their God. It's absolutely contrary to the kind of relationship, that covenant that God had set up with Israel. This is why under the new covenant now, God tells us in Romans, right, here's what your spiritual act of worship is. It's to offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable. That's what God is looking for from his redeemed people. It's for them to give themselves, their inwardly to the Lord, all of them, not just to give outward ritual or um, tangible gifts to him. You've got to remember that just like in the Ten Commandments, just like here in the first few verses of chapter 6, God's grace comes first. God's grace always comes first in the covenant. God takes the initiative. God saves his people when they don't deserve it, when they can't help themselves. And then he calls them to obedience. See, Jesus paid a debt on the cross that we owed, but we could never pay. And what God the Father does is he he now counts that debt paid in full, not because we paid it, but because Christ did. And in response now... (laughs) God does not send us a bill for all of that in the mail. Say, okay, well, now you've got to pay up. Maybe I can put you on a payment plan, but you've got to pay eventually. No, that would be absurd. The whole point is that there, there's nothing we could offer that would be valuable enough to compensate the Lord for everything he's done. It's like Psalm 50. Remember where the Lord says, okay, if hypothetically I ever needed something, which I don't because I own the cattle on a thousand hills, but if I ever did, do you really think I would ask you for it? If I were hungry, I would not tell you, he says, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And that psalm, very much the same theme as here, says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Again, that's an inward matter of the heart. Perform your vows to him. Keep your promises. Living a life of integrity. That's what God wants from you. Micah is taking up that same great theme that runs throughout the Bible, But he's taking it up again right here in the very famous verse 8, the most famous verse in the book of Micah, um, where he says, essentially, Israel, it's it's just not that complicated. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But three things. The first one is to do justice. For our actions, for our words, for our relationships to reflect the righteousness of of God in all of our dealings. And and you think here in the context of Micah how different this is from 
um, the kind of behavior Micah described in the first couple chapters. Remember all of the imagery of the wealthy and powerful people in and around Jerusalem constantly taking advantage of the people under their influence, fleecing and butchering the sheep instead of feeding and watering them. You know, figuratively, God's sheep. They're taking these people that God had called them to defend and to help, and they're doing the opposite. They're attacking and oppressing them in order to enrich themselves. Right? This is one of the reasons that God is prosecuting them before the mountains of Israel here in chapter 6 is because they've broken the covenant by not living by the justice of the covenant. That justice, covenant justice that's supposed to reflect the character of God, spell it out in the law of God, and they've ignored it. They've lived completely contrary to it. There's a second very simple thing that God has called Israel to do is to love Kindness. Now, kindness is kind of a trendy word these days. Um, bumper stickers say, be kind. Of course, people mean different things by that. Um, maybe we won't get into that in detail right now. It's worth, worth thinking about. What do people mean when they say be kind? Sometimes people just mean be nice. Sometimes people mean just get along. I, think it, I hope it will be helpful to you to know um, that the Hebrew word here for kindness, actually, if you look at the ESV footnote, you can see it could also be translated steadfast love. And if you've been listening to me preach for long enough, that might make you perk up and think, oh, this is going to be Zach's favorite Hebrew word. And sure enough, it is chesed. Chesed. I've told you this many times. It's not just because it's fun to say. It's because it's a really important uh, word in the Old Testament referring to that uh, covenantal loyalty, that um, love that is established by the covenantal boundaries and enriched by them. You think of love and loyalty together, um, not one without the other, but this personal commitment, that's the love part, that's bounded and secured and strengthened by the legal commitment of covenant. That's, that's chesed. And that's what God wants his people not just to live by. It's not just the rule. It's what he wants us to love. He wants us to love chesed, to love that steadfast love of the covenant, that aspect of our, our, our loyalty to God, our loyalty to one another, and, and this commitment to one another and to him. Uh, the last one is humility, walking humbly with your God. Um, the church father, Augustine, famously said, if you ask me to list uh, the three most important things about the Christian life, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but um, here's what I would tell you the three most important things are. Number one is humility. Number two is humility. And number three is humility. Okay. God opposes the proud, James 4, 6, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, of course, this is the opposite of the kind of attitude that's represented in verses 6 and 7. What, well, what if there's something I can offer to God to convince him to accept me? What if I can do something really heroic, really sacrificial, really religious, and then God will see me as, as worth something more. But you see, that, that, that kind of attitude is exactly wrong. It's completely contrary to the grace of God because God is not looking for us to prove ourselves to him. He is looking for us to do the opposite. He's looking for us to admit our weakness and our need, to own up to it, to say, we are weak, but you are strong. I cannot do what the law requires, and that is why I need the gospel. I cannot offer the perfect life that I owe, 
And that is why I need Jesus' life instead of mine, for him to stand in my place. That's a humility that's at the heart of true conversion, of true Christianity. It's recognizing that my life with God sits on the bedrock of his work for me, not my work for him. Love that hymn that says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Because all the fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that, what? So that no one may boast. So that all of us, in coming to terms with our own inability and helplessness before God and the riches and abundance of His grace, can walk humbly with our God. And downstream of that, walk more humbly in our relationships with one another. Oh, the last section we're going to touch on much more briefly, um, just to sum up what's going on here. I think it's pretty clear, but basically God has shown Israel what he requires. It's not that complicated. But now he's showing that Israel is nowhere close to actually living that way. They are running in the opposite direction. Um, Micah is saying, here's the law, verse 8, but it's a law that you haven't kept. And what follows then is the verdict. We're calling the covenant conviction against Israel for their sin, um, especially in the way that they treat one another. Uh, They are seeking to enrich themselves by dishonest and corrupt means. It's the deceitful weights, the scant measure where you falsify the quantities and maybe you're trying to sell grain, but you basically are putting your thumb on the scales, as sometimes people will say. Uh, to, to be dishonest and enrich yourself at the expense of others uh, through deceit. Looking out for number one, um, no matter the expense to anybody else. They're not being humble, they're being violent and deceitful and selfish. But the important thing here at the end of the chapter is to look at the outcome. All of this selfish living, is it going to pay off? And in the short run, it seems like it has because people have grown very rich through their oppression of their neighbors. But the fact is that in the long run, it's going to have the opposite effect of what they intend. Uh, God's judgment is coming, and Micah is saying that the punishment is going to fit the crime, where you shall eat and not be satisfied. There shall be hunger. Uh, whoops, sorry. Uh, you shall eat and not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword, and so on. It reminds me of the parable of the rich farmer that Jesus tells, where he says, wow, I've got this bumper crop. I just need to be, build bigger barns, and then tomorrow, uh, then I'll um, be able to just retire and, and uh, enjoy life, take, take life easy. And God says, fool, this night your life is required of you, and when you're gone, who, who's going to um, enjoy all of this perishing stuff that you've laid, laid up for yourself? You've accumulated it all, but you're not going to get to enjoy it. And he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Uh, This, by the way, is one of the types of covenant curse previewed in the book of Deuteronomy. Again, we're going back to Deuteronomy again, because Deuteronomy is where the covenant is set up. And Micah, again, is, is prosecuting Israel in terms of the covenant from Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, this is one of the things that God said. If you violate the covenant... 
here's going to be one of the consequences. One of those covenant curses is you're going to plant vineyards and olive trees, but you're not going to enjoy the wine and the oil from them. Why? Maybe because a foreign army is going to come and take those grapes and those olives for themselves that you've grown. All of that work, all of that self-consumed, stubborn way of living is going to end in disappointment and poverty. As we come to the end here, then see that God's requirements are not complicated, and yet Israel has systematically lived in the opposite way. I think this passage really shines a light on the spiritual situation that we are in even now. See, God hasn't changed, and his basic requirements, what he's looking for, the terms of the, the covenant of, of, of what he is looking for in the hearts of his people, uh, for all that has changed since the coming of Christ, that basic standard remains the same. And our basic need remains the same. See, all of us find ourselves in this same cosmic courtroom. The law of God is as simple for us as it was for them, but we have failed as miserably as they have to keep it. And this is why, it's one of the many reasons why we so badly need the Lord Jesus Christ, that man of perfect justice and chesed and humility. That's who the Lord Jesus is, the man who came and kept that covenant that we had broken by our sin and who offered that perfect sacrifice that we could never give. God himself coming in our human nature to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And to stand in the cosmic courtroom in the presence of the mountains that bear witness against our sin. And he stood there in our place and he took upon himself that covenant condemnation that we deserved. And so now, what is Jesus doing? Now Jesus plans to give us freely, give us freely something so much better than what our sinful hearts uh, naturally are um, always trying to scrape and scramble to get for ourselves. Jesus is planning to give us freely the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. That is a free gift that we could never earn, that we could never buy, no matter what sacrifices we might make to get it. Only Jesus could earn it, and we can only get it as a gift. And you know, as hard as that can be to accept and to live by consistently, it really does, in one sense, make things quite simple. What is left then for us but to seek his grace, to live a life that more and more matches the shape of his life? Doing justice, loving that Chesed loyalty to him and to each other, and walking humbly before him. That's what he's looking for from us. Nothing dramatic. It really is that simple. That doesn't mean that it's easy, but it does mean it's not complicated. Quoted Augustine earlier, closed with another of his thoughts. 
where he said in a prayer, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God has given us so much in Christ already. And now as he gives us this command of what a life of integrity and covenantal faithfulness looks like, that ought to be our prayer to him. Lord, command what you will, justice, kindness, humility before him. But Lord, give what you command. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is our prayer that you would give to us strength to live this life of integrity and gratitude to you for all that you have done for us. Lord, it's not because we live with justice, kindness, and humility uh, that you forgive us. Lord, it's because you've forgiven us and given us everything in Jesus that we desire to give ourselves to you in this way. Um, And so, Lord, do command what you will and give what you command. Help us to um, put this into practice in the coming days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.